0: Welcome back to Unchanging Education with Dan Clements. This is Season 3, the theme of which is Them. And this is Part 3, an E.D. Hirsch primer. A recapitulation of TVSC, focused on SC mainly. And then some comments on E.D. Hirsch. So I want to take a step back here, in the most general sense, about... Well, first I should address... That this is almost strangely kind of a short season as it's shaping up. And mainly this is for the simple reason that Tate already did an excellent job and, in some ways, you know, wrote the book on them so that, um, well, not to sound self congratulatory, but so that I don't have to. And so it's um, that it, it can be serviced almost indirectly just by sort of touching on all four of these thinkers because largely the the premise of this project of unchanging education is that so many of these thinkers are neglected and they have to be brought back into some sort of pedagogical um, relevancy or prominence and so since that's mostly already been accomplished by a book that is better than a book i could have written it, it it can be sort of a cursory. So, in general, then, just coming to this idea of teacher versus student-centered, TVSC, and why we might assert more of a teacher-centered paradigm over student-centered, in opposition to the current domination of SC. And there's the most general level, which is this matter of dogma or doctrine the sense that education through student-centeredness possesses a kind of a truth and has its own high priests and proselytizers or evangelists and that it operates as a kind of an orthodoxy rather than a heterodoxy that sc is the answer and that is certainly the majority view and a lack of viewpoint diversity thus is not a problem And to question that minority view is heresy. So what what is created in education is what's often called an echo chamber, which is meant uh, a sound mirror that's reflected back. And this general problem is that without questions and without challenges, something, uh, any kind of set of ideas becomes weak. That it is through dealing with hard questions and intellectual challenges that any system actually maintains its strength or veracity. And so education is, in a sense, weak or feeble intellectually. And that it compensates for this, you might call it a reaction formation or a compensation, with zeal that there's no no like vigorous or rigorous sense of, of attacks and defenses of arguments, positions, or propositions. The attacks have much more of an ad hominem type flavor, as indicated by things like heretics and high priests, this sort of language. And so it tends to see challenges to its SC authority Um as people with not as people with bad ideas, but as bad people with ideas, which is the, the worse, like a, the more troubling conclusion. When this can also be phrased in terms of uh, opponents and enemies, right? Your opponent um, is, you know, to be respected and is a person that you recognize and have some respect for, but you may think they have bad ideas. Whereas an enemy, as opposed to opposition here, um, an enemy is a bad person with ideas. So increasingly education almost operates more like what has been called the capital T, capital S, the science. That there is a scientistic authority appeal that SC makes upon itself that pedagogy has, in a way, become a settled matter, and that the book or the case is closed. And so TVSC makes the modest proposal that we must reopen the books. And education ultimately cannot serve its function, its service to society, culture, civilization, well, if it is itself hostile to ideas. I mean, a hostility to ideas is anathema to education itself. And so education cannot do its job well in that mode. And increasingly, once this kind of idea takes over, the answer to every question and every problem is already obvious. The answer is always that we just have to do or to be more S.C., and this is the hallmark of a of a totalizing takeover kind of ideology. Why, despite having a hundred years of super dominant, more or less unquestioned SC um, preeminence, it's the the problems persist because we're told of this kind of lingering hangover, this ghost, this um, you know thinking of Nietzsche. You know, God is dead and we have killed him, but there's still the problem of this stinking corpse. That that is the way that SC sees education. That it still can't get rid of these last traces of this old bad thing. It cannot conceive of its own issues. So it, it could even be 80 or 90, 98 or 99% SC. But as long as there's any trace of this, you know, any, any bit of sand in this oyster, uh, to paraphrase Neil Gaiman, um, then th- we just have to stamp out and eradicate this old enemy, this old opponent of TC. And so what often happens is that education becomes quite good at ignoring problems, strangely because of its false solutions that all we have to do is just be more, we just have to commit more fervently to the answers that we already have. It's all a matter of commitment to the idea that we are already possessing. And so we don't need any more new ideas. The the matter of the idea is settled. It's student-centered. So what is SC? Well, it is many things. First of all, as I'm articulating here, it it, it primarily functions through the negation that it is anti-teacher centered, and very often this the way that it understands TC is perhaps, well, in, in unintentional or an or an intentional misunderstanding. And that teacher-centeredness is always interpreted, I think, in terms of what we might call a straw or a hollow man kind of fallacy. Two, it is therapeutic. And that there is a move from the emphasis on self-esteem, the self-esteem movement, into the newer form of uh, social-emotional learning. And also, as I'll discuss uh, momentarily, safetyism. This is all encompassed by what I think of as this therapeutization problem in education. Third is this emphasis on problem-solving and critical thinking. Fourth is an emphasis on the global and on the future. The 21st century, uh, a scientific, technological, secular education. And fifth is this political emphasis on DEI and uh, what could be described as a, a far or a hard left form of activism. That education is, that it exists perhaps even primarily to produce change agents. another issue related here um, maybe this could be included as the sixth point but there is also this this de-emphasis of any kind of authority now authority is this this probably could also be collapsed into point number one that it's anti-teacher centered that it's not important to have any sort of authority or an expert or we could even use the phrase like the term of a master in relation to an apprentice as in a guild any kind of authority, expertise any kind of master in relation to an apprentice in the way that teachers have always uh, under TC existed, teachers and students in relation to one another in a kind of master-apprentice style that it's not important for teachers to know anything that they don't know more than anyone they don't know more than their students and that that doesn't matter. And certainly an issue with this is that that becomes true. And that it becomes less important to select teachers who are knowledgeable. And there's almost a kind of a perverse incentive to to lean into teachers with whom this won't be a problem. So let me just, uh, I want to try to ta- address all of these I just wanted to kind of list them very briefly at first, one to five, and then to come to each one of them uh, a little bit more in in depth. So, for one, teacher centered has really just become a collection of all of the of all the things that like, the new pedagogues primarily don't like. Anything that they think is a poor form of education just becomes labeled as TC. Anything that's I mean, anything that's bad, right? That TC is just bad. Anything TC is bad and anything bad is TC, which sets up a very obvious advantage that SC, thus, is just anti-bad. It's just pro-good. I know this sounds extremely simplistic, but I and, and to some extent, I, I'm, I am simplifying and generalizing, but I really think that it is that simple. So for two, this emphasis on the therapeutic. It's not just a matter of, you know helping students. It's even more of a focus on avoiding hurt, to not hurt students. And again, this follows really closely from point one because of this presentism. That what was before us, the TC, it was just this old, bad, cruel, uh, these malignant adults inflicting cruelties upon you know, uh, good-natured children. And so we are we're not the old bad, cruel way. And we don't again almost strangely, we don't exist SC. We don't exist primarily to help students. What we really want to do is to focus on avoiding hurting them. Which may sound like a perfectly reasonable goal, but it it almost seems to ignore this it, the prime directive is to help students though and to put this in this massive emphasis on you know not hurting students again it, it's informed by a false understanding of the entire history of education that if you think that what education has always done is hurt kids and say well now we're here we're going to be the ones who don't hurt kids again it's as i suggested before it's a false solution. If you, uh, quite simply, if you, if you don't really understand the real problems, or if you almost select the most, like the most obvious form of a problem, then almost incredibly, education just thinks that if we just stop this trend of of teachers just inflicting cruelties, then we're it's a quantum leap in the quality of education okay so this also relates to to a more contemporary conversation about safetyism uh, from Haidt and Lukianoff and I'll include their epigraph because I think it adds a nice flavor to this and um, I'll read very briefly from um, fr- from their text, and then comment um, with, a, with a kind of a critique. When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, put him to poverty, place obstacles in the paths of his deeds, so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent. So, this is a section, I'll just read the first, uh, the first paragraph in the first sentence of the second paragraph, under the rise of safetyism. In the 20th century, this is Haydn Lukianov, the word safety generally meant physical safety. A great triumph of the late part of that century was that the United States became physically safer for children. As a result of class action lawsuits, efforts by investigative journalists and consumer advocates, such as Ralph Nader and his expose of the auto industry, unsafe at any speed, and common sense, dangerous products and practices became less prevalent. Between 1978 and 1985, all 50 states passed laws making the use of car seats mandatory for children. Homes and daycare centers were child-proofed, choking hazards and sharp objects were removed. As a result, death rates for children have plummeted. This is, of course, a very good thing. Although, in some other ways, the focus on physical safety may have gone too far. The Alison Gopnik essay quoted above was titled, Should We Let Toddlers Play With Saws and Knives?, her answer was, maybe. But gradually, in the 21st century, on some college campuses, the meaning of safety underwent a process of, quote, concept creep, and expanded to include, quote-unquote, emotional safety. So what I want to suggest here is that actually the inverse may be true, that emotional safety is is the original idea. And the creep or expansion occurred in a different way, but still with the same result. That emotional safety, I think quite clearly, can be traced from something like this self-esteem movement up to social-emotional learning, as I've mentioned. But emotional safety became so sensitively calibrated that offenses against it Uh, Offenses against or anything that compromised emotional safety came to be interpreted not just as aggressive in a social sense, someone can behave aggressively, but they're not actually literally violent. Even, for example, the phrase like passive aggressive. But this explains the collapse of emotional and physical safety in a different way. So of course I agree with haydn and Lukianov that these categories of emotional and physical safety are in some ways made indistinguishable. That is, that they are confused. But there's an, an alternative view, or just sort of a, a different interpretation here, that this is all, in a broad sense, the result of the expanse of emotional safety. And this this therapeutic idea traces all the way back to Freud. And this is this this sense that. If you say no to someone, um, if you deny them a desire that they will develop a complex, that's kind of this therapeutic root of of all of this. And almost how that psychoanalytic idea is largely not well understood, but still hugely influential in in, in the general kind of collective mind, so to speak. So what I'm saying is that it, it happened more that almost uh, basically, you know, gain saying, heightened looking off here and saying that this emphasis on safety, um, you know, they pointed out as, well, they mentioned 1978 um, in this, this huge emphasis on safety. Um, that this, this emphasis on emotional safety in some ways predicated this extremely highly sensitive uh, kind of hyper-awareness of that things that are emotional threats are also physical threats too. That basically almost anything can be interpreted as a physical threat. And so this increased sensitivity to anything that may be a, a threat or a violence that undermines our safety, that in a sense... This emphasis on physical safety could be, alternatively, a consequence of this really dialed-up fear about um, psychological safety. Okay, so coming to this third point about problem-solving and critical thinking. These, much like SC in the way that SC operates, as something that within the field is just impossible to be against... You're not student-centered. Like what kind of a monster are you? Something similar occurs with problem-solving or critical thinking. That these they're they're almost impossible to be against, right? And so it's easy to clothe yourself to insulate yourself from criticism um, by you know wrapping this flag of problem-solving, critical thinking around yourself. But ultimately, my critique here is that. SC is almost so busy talking about doing these things that it it doesn't actually achieve them in practice, that they become educational slogans. They're not actual educational outcomes in any real sense. But really, what I really think of when I think of critical thinking, problem solving, is that, I mean, the word alchemy is what comes to mind. that, That these are... Like the ultimate goals of what education wants to achieve, and it takes a really long time, starting with solid foundations. Uh, in my view, solid foundations in a kind of a knowledge-based curriculum that you really have to know a lot in order to be, or to be able to to become, or to do these these really higher-level abstract kinds of things. Right? That they're both they're both more abstract and they critical and you know problem-solving. They require a kind of an agility. But that using sort of alchemical terms, that these are the. Let's just. I think it's probably fair at this point to say that problem solving was probably an earlier emphasis and that critical thinking has kind of replaced that term. So. We can probably just absorb problem solving into critical thinking. The critical thinking is the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life. It's the thing that we're trying to get to. It's the the telos, the endpoint. You could also call it the holy grail of education or the skeleton key. But the problem with alchemy is that it's almost a way to to divine the shortcut. To get to these to get to these things almost uh, it's almost something like you might say hacking nature. right? And so to hack the nature of education, is, that, well, we don't want people to have to go through this very long and difficult process of almost a lifetime of education just to become a great thinker. Why can't we just start making great thinkers directly early on? Why does, why does something like critical thinking have to be this slow and methodical thing that has to happen? It's almost, to use another analogy, it's almost like wanting to you know, just skip to the end of the book, uh, to skip to the last chapter. But when you do that, you certainly risk losing the plot altogether. So before I go on to this fourth point about this uh, which kind of includes a lot of things about global, future, 21st century, science, technology, secular, and the way that those are all kind of unified in a way. Probably all around the word global. Let me just trace back to a slightly different twist on this therapeutic idea. Point two about the therapeutic is that this therapeutic tendency is in some ways indistinguishable from consumerism that it's consumeristic in its hedonism right that it's a feel-good philosophy about not denying yourself things right that in that sense you could say that it is indulgent or even decadent either way it's certainly very different from the old way right that you might say that something like delayed gratification is is sort of not in vogue, not in fashion, in terms of parenting and educating, in terms of our whole relationship to the to the immature generation, and not just delayed gratification and you know saying no, but also this emphasis of feeling overthinking. So, TC would emphasize delayed gratification and thinking over feeling, whereas this kind of, I realize that hedonism is uh, such a pejorative, but certainly, I mean, we could also say sort of feel good philosophy or, or some sort of New Ageism. But this emphasis on feeling certainly suits therapy. And I mean, what's meant by delayed versus instant gratification? Is that you may indeed have to feel bad now in order to be greater later, and that this—that you can really, if you disrupt this—I mean, it can be very harmful. This idea that that we should that anyone should feel good all the time. Some might say that it's perhaps distinctly American, but perhaps not. Okay. So, um, what I wanted to say about this whole fairly flowery language about, you know, the the global future, uh, the 21st century learner, that in a way, this is uh, just another negation, Uh, not necessarily of TC, but very close to that. And... That all of these things, uh, I think, increasingly are being recognized. There's kind of a kind of a new awareness that you know. Let's just start with global. Global is in a way meant to replace the nation, right? So, for example, any kind of traditional value like like the love of one's country, patriotism, is something that education needs to actively short circuit. That that a relationship to the past um, through history or even through um, in the almost the canon in terms of the our our literary history that this emphasis on the future is again meant to short circuit an emphasis on the past that the nation and the past I mean these are just outdated outmoded they need to be replaced and along with the past in general and the nation in particular, there's also this, perhaps this is mainly where, you could say that it's it's science and technology, but you could also say that it's the state that is meant to replace religion. And I think there's, there's even, I mean, along with the, the past and the nation and a religion, even an emphasis on the family, that family becomes something very uncertain and and indefinable. And that the child is more and more kind of exists uh, atomistically or independently from a family structure, from a family unit. And also part of this is this increased familiarity, or you might even say intimacy, that I think is emphasized in SC about um, a really uh, about a, a close uh, a, a proximal rather than distal relationship between teacher and student. Um, this is also partly achieved through two, through the, the therapeutic. That the teacher is sort of you know, someone you should go and talk to about, you know, private, personal things. And the teachers should not deflect and tell the child, the student to, you know, I mean, have you talked to your parents about this? Talk to somebody else. And deflecting in a way to preserve this kind of like this cool, professional, dispassionate relationship. So I was talking about the lack of, or the sort of decline of authority, and that since authority is bad, a, a lack of authority or an unauthoritative teacher is a good thing. And again, this relates back to this therapeutic idea about discipline and and again, also very much... I mean, a lot of these things are very interconnected, but also this anti-TC sentiment that there's a really powerful prejudice against words like punishment and discipline, that they're only seen as being, you know, just that they're just very bad things. And uh, punishment is, you know, in, in a way more tricky to articulate. But discipline, in terms of you know, self-control, self-discipline, um, or even just—I suppose it could also be described as a kind of uh, stick-to-itness—that discipline is can be a very good thing, and but that there's there's a discipline that is required to not again not not jumping to the end of not in terms of critical thinking but let's say instead of something like creativity that the novice apprentice who is just brand new to something um it's it's basically almost impossible that they're going to be able to start innovating in a creative way without again having any sort of solid foundations and so while I mean, discipline here is almost the same as patience, that you have to be uh, patient and disciplined as a student, and that you, at least in the early stages, you are a humble apprentice to knowledge, and that the the teacher is, in a way, a kind of a bridge trying to get you from this position of not having the knowledge of ignorance um, to being knowledgeable, Um, in this way removes ignorance moving from roughly from being uneducated in some way um, to being educated or to being better educated okay so let me talk a little bit more about Three, again this whole problem solving critical thinking point why does education say that it values thinking i mean or, or why should it even have to be said right this saying that, well like you know we as education we value thinking right again this is this is just this again this very strange Hollow Man attack on TC that, you know, for a long, long, long time, uh, nobody ever cared about thinking. They just wanted, you know, kids to, you know, shut up and memorize things or else they'd be, you know, assaulted. But more specifically, we should focus on, I think, it may sound uh, some somewhat tedious, but thinking and solving these present tense, right? That thinking is different from thought. In the sense that thought implies a past. Right. So this touches on this whole um, you know, past versus future issue. That thinking and solving that they're present tense and even skills, right? Skills are also I mean, all of these terms and ideas, they're so contemporary, right? They're just and, and they're unrooted. Right, you need to be, you know, thinking critically and solving problems, and with with all these, you know, new skills, and all of these things, potentially or at least hypothetically, they can all be achieved without some sort of broad understanding, without a, a knowledge of of the world and the way it is and and how we got here. That all that it's it's totally, again, like I said, just contemporary it's just based on the present with an eye to the future and it really kind of denies the past right whereas thought implies like a knowledge tradition I think and this again this strange that before us or before this student-centered thing, right? When when TC reigned, um, kids not only didn't think, but they also weren't valued. Again, going uh, back to the the therapeutic, and that well, I mean now we actually value kids and we actually care about their thinking and we value their thinking. So we we, we value them, and we value thinking. We value their thinking. As if this is just, you know, some new radical thing that before the you know before the past hundred years of this pedagogy, um, that it that it wasn't the case. And what reason do we have to believe that it's true? And so SC constantly positions itself as you know changing an evil corrupt past, but. What it purports to be changing is its own mythologization of the history of education so you create a myth or a kind of a false narrative um about your your opponent or more more severely your enemy and you just really start and it becomes easy to kind of scapegoat that tc enemy and say well anything anything bad that ever happened in the history of education is of course a perfect example of the way that the whole thing is. So any any instance of anything bad that ever happened before us um, is is you know indicative of the whole of what was before us. When I'm saying us, I mean before the we um, student centered types arrived on the scene uh, to to save everyone from this uh, heretofore evil education paradigm. I think I already mentioned that all that's really important is that teachers be committed to this idea, to the ideology of SC itself. That you just have to be, that, that teachers, the only thing that's really important for them is that they be acolytes to this particular understanding. Because it's no longer really the mission of education in terms of how it sees itself to, to move people from an ignorant or an uneducated position. I think it's quite obvious. No one is born educated, and yet we want people to become educated. People themselves want to become educated, and that, that is the move that education ought to facilitate. But because that is the knowledge and in a traditional educational sense, is de-emphasized. It's no longer really that important for teachers to really be knowledgeable or for teachers themselves to be well-educated. Because knowledge and education, these, these aren't the things that are really emphasized or prioritized. And so you can have ill-educated and unknowledgeable teachers, but as long as they're really committed to SC then you know they can be you know given full admittance and you know you can become and be a teacher and be quite secure in it and without any kind of knowledge or education in the classroom a teacher often doesn't have this kind of baseline authority that they would otherwise and so simply just resigning to the fact that well you know i'm you know, this is just this is a democracy, like I'm just the teacher, but I'm, I'm learning as much from them as they are from me, which I think, frankly, teachers should, should be embarrassed to say. But denying one's own power or authority in the classroom as the teacher, this is much easier than learning how to use these things wisely. How can you use the power and authority of the teacher in the classroom judiciously? Oh, I don't have to consider that because I'm just not the authority at all. I don't have any more power than anybody else. We're all just equals. Of course, it's hard to imagine how that could really actually be true. Again, its I don't think it's a real practice. It's just a slogan. Okay, so let me come to Hirsch. I really don't have too much, but I think it's just sort of a... I noted in the description and that this is kind of a primer, in a sense. Okay. Um, so, Hirsch. The default excuse of most modern education reformers for failing schools? It's the fault of teachers. But, as Hirsch points out, even good teachers will be hampered if their school has an inadequate curriculum. Quote, the real problem, he says, is not teacher quality, but idea quality. And this is kind of my whole thesis here, is that the problem really is not with teachers, but with pedagogy, with idea quality. Now Hirsch is more interested in curriculum but I think that we've moved away from a knowledge-based curriculum um, based on this new student-centered idea that, well, I mean, knowledge really isn't that important, that there are other things that are just as important. And it gets education just gets watered down and diluted. Uh, continuing, quote, The difficulty lies not with the inherent abilities of teachers, but with the theories that have watered down their training and created an intellectually chaotic school environment. So these theories not only water down, but they also, um, you know, they, they kind of overcomplicate. That, and it's not just theories, really. It's, it's so many other emphases and new programs and initiatives uh, that there are just so many things that teachers are expected to do, that there are just new whims from the society all the time and you know whenever enough people are saying well why aren't they doing this in school um, that teachers are about to get a new kind of a job to do and it's also a kind of an indictment against whatever teachers were teaching before if they weren't teaching that um, so partly this becomes just an, an over complication in the profession that well okay we've got this new thing and there'll be another new thing coming along soon but in terms of the economy of of teaching what is now being de-emphasized and that's never explicit this is one of the most unimaginable you know problems of why again that it's intellectually chaotic just the disorder of education that there's just this sense that we can just keep adding new things and never have to have really difficult conversations about what intentionally um we think that we think can be removed and so it just kind of happens this watering down this um this just this piling on that it kind of just makes teachers do everything worse um again that makes it sound like blaming teachers again but when you've got too many things to do you almost inherently have to just start doing Teachers at an individual level then start to have to choose what they're going to emphasize or not, right? And so that's not an adequate curriculum. You've got too many things for teachers to do. They can't do all of them. And so they have to start picking and choosing what they can actually do and what they're not going to have time for. And again, that's not a curriculum. That's just you know, that's just teachers choosing what they're going to do. Which strangely could almost be the point of it. But there aren't these really hard conversations about the real priorities, right? Everything just has this, everything just sounds like an extremely important, you know, high priority. The complaint that teachers do not know their subject matter would change almost overnight with a more specific curriculum and less evasion about what the subject matter of that curriculum ought to be. I noted earlier, um, you know, another idea about, well, how can we change? How can we make a great change in education overnight? And one was, well, just anyone with a master's degree who doesn't have a a teaching degree can teach K to 12. Then you're getting more knowledge in and you're, taking away this the the kind of monopoly that the ed schools have and that the way that they you know engineer a particular kind of teacher and a particular kind of student but again if teachers knew what they were supposed to be teaching in advance and thus could be knowledgeable about it and that these things were you know not not you know immune to change but there was this stability right? That, and, and kind of an, an order in and in a process and what's sometimes called scope and sequence that was really adhered to and that wasn't interfered with, then Hirsch is saying that that would make it better overnight. But again, the focus on idea quality and theories that water down teacher training and create intellectual chaos in, in education itself amongst teachers doesn't really say how this you know filters down uh to students and that you know classrooms or that learning itself becomes intellectually chaotic Um, but i think i think it is implied here okay so a little bit more from hirsch and along the line of human development in a lengthy immaturity this is an idea that we've come across quite a bit in the in the tc literature uh, is this long period of development or this long period of immaturity or dependence probably that's how we originally came across it a lengthy period of dependence transmission of traditional knowledge is said to be conformist and suppressive of individuality this anti-transmission doctrine is probably the most astonishingly misguided principle yet devised under the natural development conception. Natural development con- conception we should first be thinking of Rousseau as the great-grandfather of student-centeredness but of course we're also just generally thinking of SC. Okay. Um, remember, I'll just recap uh, this. The, these three figures on either side SC and TC SC from Russo um, through Dewey to Freire versus, again, that's quite well established. I kind of have my own um, tripartite TC movement um, from Locke to Locke and um, Philip Reif one other. I'll I'll come back to it. Uh, Anyway, the important thing here is Rousseau to Dewey to Freire. Transmission, far from being in conflict with human development, is essential to it. He talks about uh, another thinker named Bourdieu um, and a text called The Inheritors. He entitled it The Disinherited or The Urgency of Transmission. And there's a, a young teacher and saying that basically, after 50 years after the Inheritors, our educational system, greatly influenced by that book's condemnation of transmission, has become the most inaligata- inegalitarian in Europe. Pierre Bourdieu, Son of an agricultural worker in a little village in, Bern. Would he today have the slightest chance of entering the Ecole Normale Supérieure? So, um, uh, an, an important intellectual who had very like you know humble, modest roots. If he was in the education system in France today, would he you know be able to enter into the top university? And the answer given here is that without any doubt, no. And the reasoning is given as such. The only survivors of the shipwreck of our public education are those whose parents know the tactics for escaping the disaster, which quarters to live in, which subjects to emphasize, which options to choose. On the other end of the spectrum are the designated victims of social selection. Among them, the children of immigrant families. It is with them in mind that we renounced teaching the culture of our country and transmitting to all a common heritage. Today, those young people have twice the average risk of serious academic failure. Who can fail to see that this is the true violence, that such denial of transmission cannot fail one day to explode? So I've talked about this before about how public K to twelve education has ceased to be um, like a, a leveling influence; that it no longer levels the playing field for everyone, because it's kind of been sapped of its real academic rigor, of its actual uh, content in terms of what it delivers to people. That the yield of education has become you know, elusive in a sense. And, again, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the rhetoric you hear coming from pedagogy is we need to radically reimagine and revolutionize education. And when you have these, I mean, in, in a general sense, when you have these sweeping changes, it's always going to be, you know, well-to-do families that are able to cope with these changes, Right, education becoming something uh, unrecognizable compared to their own experiences when they were in school and so um, these changes in education that are meant to sort of ostensibly meant to help the underprivileged or meant to promote equality they end up doing the opposite partly just because they're they're changing so much that the only people who can you know keep up with the changes are these kinds of um, upper middle class more professional parent types but also that there that this this watering down this dilution of education that if it's not that if education itself um, public education K to 12 if it doesn't really offer if it doesn't make people particularly well educated and it doesn't really prepare them for you know top universities or difficult courses of study in university, then then there there are some families that can compensate for all of that loss, right? Um, when schools become more focused on it, they start to emphasize other non-academic things. It's the families who can supplement uh, a, this very different kind of educational experiment, experience with other things outside of it. Whereas you know, low income or poor families, they're not able. Like they're not, they're not hiring private tutors to make sure that their kids are actually, you know, learning, um, you know, the most difficult, most abstract topics and subjects. Okay, before I continue with Hirsch, let me just come back to this drawing a blank on Bagley. Um, so I mean, typically. I'm used to thinking of them as as oppositions one to another. I think that's why I blanked there. Um, Locke and Rousseau, Bagley and Dewey, and then Rife and Friari, or the the three S C. Uh, Rousseau, Dewey, Friari, and then the three T C. Locke, Bagley, and Philip Rife. Okay, sorry about that. So. There is this, so so here, I mean, certainly Hirsch is criticizing. Remember, this is um, Hirsch, but ultimately still through the lens of Tate, okay, that there's this critique of child-centered education and this anti-transmission point of view. This idea of, you know, one generation transmitting all of our, you know, collective inherited wisdom and, and sort of transmitting, passing it on as an inheritance to the next generation. That that isn't in, that increasingly that that is, you know, that's it, not what education sees itself as doing anymore, and therefore it's not what it does. It's not only non emphasized; it's actively de-emphasized. So the big question is: which mode of schooling would work better and more fairly? And if you've been listening to this podcast, more. Mode of schooling, you're thinking TVSC. Uh, should be teacher-centered or student-centered, um, or in the philosophical sense um, that we kind of need this contest of both ideas here. The community-centered and knowledge-centered mode of the past, TC, or the child-centered and skills-centered mode of the future, SC. So it's setting up this opposition between community, knowledge, Versus individualistic child skills, and in um, a naturalistic emphasis again. We're thinking Rousseau here. Child-centered principles, where it would seem malpractice, Hirsch writes, to have all the children in a class read, you know, the very same work, and then discuss it. The contents under a communal view of education. Um, such whole class activity would seem the most natural thing in the world. It is by far the most lively and productive kind of classroom. So really what he's talking about here is inquiry. That children need to choose their own their own books and their own path of learning and really kind of uh, take control of their own education, so to speak. Um, at, a very, at a very quotidian level rather than you know, a, a curriculum and that teachers are you know, moving thinking much more in terms of a cohort right? a class not in an economic sense but you know, a, a class of students who are learning this and then learning that um, having it much more atomized that all these individual children um, can all kind of learn the different things that they're interested in learning about This is inquiry. This is um, very important in the IB, International Baccalaureate Curriculum. But increasingly, it's important everywhere. Um, You know, working on projects that are very open-ended and that, um, you know, it's also going to be very hard to assess in the sense that it's entirely possible that the things that children choose to learn about are things that you know, I think I've used the example of skateboarding and discussing this. You know, the teacher, your teacher doesn't know anything about skateboarding, okay? And so they're, they're not really going to be able to, to very accurately assess the, like, the information. Or they can't really, you know, like, test how accurate your information is. Um, but again, it, it's strangely, it doesn't seem to matter very much. So in any event, this is a particular historical movement Um, in the 1960s, after the child-centered takeover of American elementary schools. And I don't think it was... It may seem only very recently that this child-centered takeover of American universities has occurred. Um, But you might say that it's every... We could probably just very roughly say it's roughly every 20 years um, in the 60s in elementary schools and then the 80s in high schools, and thus all of K-12, and then in the 2000s, universities as well, uh, this same the same SC philosophy um, has taken over. And that this is the child-centered individualism of the new education. So one of the things that, yeah, Hirsch is picking up on a lot of the same ideas from Bagley, uh, individualism versus collectivism, and thinking of your students in groups as classes and not as like individuals. You might almost be surprised by how much the individual child is so emphasized in teacher training, at least in my experience. Okay, um, more from Hirsch. My thesis in this book and my settled belief is that parents and educators in low-scoring elementary schools powerfully desire to improve their educational effectiveness, but are prevented from trying out a knowledge-based communal curriculum because such an approach contradicts the child-centered, skill-centric doctrines that are still an intellectual monopoly in our education world. Child-centered education has built child-level temples to the holiness of childhood, So, going back to my, my 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 introduction and trying to recap this whole general idea and um you know interesting in her that you know we we have is this problem with idea quality, and that theories that have watered down training right but they're not only low idea quality and you know watered down teaching practices because of you know low idea quality watered down theories meaning pedagogy it's not just a problem with the pedagogy but there's even a deeper problem with how just how embedded and like just i keep thinking of these almost silly sounding phrases how super dominant how hyper dominant these really bad ideas are that 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 weak, <laughs> like, feeble and enfeebling ideas have completely taken over education and are so totalizing they leave no space for anything else, Like that it cannot permit any competition of, well, we're going to have a, a, a traditional knowledge-based type approach or, or uh, program or even pilot project, pilot program. Um, that it's it, it, that it, it would just be seen as such an offense to their sensibilities of what they know so certainly must be true. And why? I mean, why is you know this child-centered, skills-centered emphasis of SC like why is it so? you know, zealous. It's as if the child's impulses are from God. And to oppose those impulses is to oppose the will of God. Again, we're thinking very much of Rousseau here again, that like the child's impulses, it's you know the child's natural inclinations towards things, um, is just not to be interfered with. So we can see this, you know, all the way from Rousseau, all the way to something like inquiry education, which is seen, I think, um, I think a lot of people in education see inquiry as being very cutting edge, um, but it just means, you know, to get out of the child's way and let the child uh, lead. And you know, the, the retort that you, that we're starting to hear is something like, you know, when you follow the child. You, you're acting like a child, right? When you're following the child's lead, you know, it make we all end up acting like children, um, which is, according to some people, I guess most people like me, don't think that's a good thing, that we don't want teachers acting like children, right? It also suggests George Carlin, and um, you know, a lot of his, um, some of his, his, his comedy about child worship, As a kind of a, as culturally decadent, I suppose. Two out of the three guiding ideas of current American elementary education naturalism and individualism. But the third guiding idea, which one could call skill centrism, the aim of imparting critical thinking skills. And similar general skills like problem solving is altogether problematic. So these are individuals with their own natural inclinations, and they need to learn these skills. That that is kind of the way that uh, Hirsch would kind of summarize SC, and it's a it's a good summary. Okay, in my view, essentialism is a preparation for perennialism and I've tried to talk about this this is going back to the early the, the kind of 40s and 50s TC thinkers and uh, it is kind of hard to know that again because SC really only has the one uh, progressivism and TC has these kind of variations of essentialism and perennialism and but here here's a in a sense that Pre-secondary is essentialist and post secondary is perennialist. Or for some for some secondary is terminal. And if their contact with the great conversation, the great conversation here is situated as perennialist, and that like essentialism prepares you for perennialism. And so essentialism is that you learn, basically, you learn all the things that you need to learn to be able to understand the great conversation. So essentialism here just kind of is like a, it serves or or feeds into, or it's like a handmaiden to perennialism. So anyway, um, the great conversation. If their contact with the great students, if their contact with the great conversation is limited, they do not become a part of the elite who transmit this to the next generation. But of course, are integral in teaching skills and more especially as parents and reinforce essentialism and may either urge their children to follow their footsteps or urge their children into a great university that is, the great conversation. So it seems that... Actually, in this description, essentialism could either prepare someone for the great conversation, or it could prepare them for, you know, um, for, for life, work, citizenship. Um, that it could either lead towards you know, um, people who don't, you know, pursue higher education, that I, I guess that they would be open to their children following in their footsteps or not, and um, that they could, I think that they would still have the same, they would still have sufficient essentials in education that they would be able, they, they would kind of, in a way, be supportive of their children, you know, entering the university or entering the Great Conversation. Of course, this is assuming that the university is roughly the same as the Great Conversation, um, which may have been more generally true at the time of this writing than it is now. Okay, so perennialism. Humans are rational beings, and their minds need to be developed. Thus, cultivation of the intellect is the highest priority, and a worthwhile education cultivation of the intellect the demanding curriculum focuses on attaining cultural literacy stressing students growth in enduring disciplines enduring and perennial have similar meanings here the loftiest accomplishments of humankind are emphasized the great works of literature and art the laws or principles science interesting to note here that the phrase cultural literacy here y- you might recognize that I think that this is a an example of a phrase that's really been captured that Hirsch seems to be using it in this teacher centered way um, that you become literate in the in the, the sort of uh, the loftiest accomplishments of the culture that you, you know, just become educated and knowledgeable about culture, almost like a capital C culture. He doesn't capitalize it here, but he's kind of talking about civilization, right? Being literate in terms of having read the great works of culture. You may also recognize that if you heard, I mean, if you just generally heard someone use this phrase today, cultural literacy, you would probably mean that, You probably assumed that they meant something like racial sensitivity, I would think. So I I just think this is an example of a, interestingly, a a phrase that has been really kind of, uh, you could say, captured or you could say co-opted. But the meaning of the phrase has changed. I just think it's important to ambiguate that, to disambiguate what the phrase may or may not mean here. Certainly, Hirsch emphasizes knowledge-based right and where he says knowledge-based i'm of course inferring uh, teacher-centered there's also an interesting point here um you know something that i hadn't considered which is you know how does this whole justice emphasis enter into education Uh, it's it's often explained as something that occurs around the 60s but it's a different, um, slightly different perspective here is that what happened is that education itself, in general, but perhaps educators in particular, that they were wealthy and comfortable and in their philanthropic years, and as a consequence of this, um, educators were eyeing social injustices. Um, you know in the way that people may do in their wealthy comfortable philanthropic years but there's also this this kind of this hedging this kind of caveat that well you know like the true masters they can be knowledge based and they can also you know still be creative and critical and you know things pertaining to like contemporary issues can still be addressed um in and through the knowledge that's being transmitted that certainly it's it's it would be a false choice that you don't have to just take your philosophy course and make it all about just you know going to marches for credit that that you can do both but but being the kind of true master that can do both, that can be knowledge-based and still uh, do all these other things, creative, critical, justice. Um, I suppose if we don't have enough true masters that can do both, then I think more and more people feel like they have to choose one or the other, which I don't think is necessarily true. But the thing that probably has happened most of all is that it's been the de-emphasis of knowledge and the emphasis of all these other things. Um, this has also been described as the curricular and the extracurricular. That these extracurricular things, we want kids to be creative, critical, and you know, socially just, these things would all be considered extracurricular from a knowledge-based perspective. So there's this sense that well no we want to make all that extracurricular stuff we want to make that the new curriculum okay creative critical social justice is the new curriculum and knowledge that's something that people are just going to have to figure out on their own right that is now extracurricular but how can it still be kind of tied in or how can it at least be made palatable that people will accept it well, if they're not going to be learning all this knowledge, then, you know, what are they doing? Like, well, why do they need all this education? And so the answer is that, well, I mean, how can we make the extracurricular into the new curricular and make it palatable or or, or still be able to sell it as still getting the benefits of all the knowledge without actually having to do the knowledge stuff. And so the answer here is to centrally install the ends, the byproducts, the things only made possible by solid foundations. To centrally install the ends or the byproducts. Um, This is, a, I think, a really good way of putting something I've been struggling to articulate here. I talked about just skipping to the good part right like you know i don't really want to go through all the trouble of becoming really well educated but i certainly want to come off as a well-educated person right i want to skip to the good part of the story right over all these boring parts um you know again just eliding this risk of losing the plot So, like, education almost just starts to say that, again, that it can centrally install these ends and byproducts. That we're going to make them critical thinkers just by making them critical thinkers. We're going to just teach them how to do that directly, right? That it's not something that requires solid foundations. That it can be the foundation itself. That's probably the best way that I can put it. No, your kids don't need solid knowledge foundations of a knowledge-based curriculum and that something elusive like critical thinking, problem-solving skills is something that really has to grow and develop organically over time through the acquisition of knowledge and slowly and gradually gaining wisdom and you know discernment. No, we are going to just we're going to start emphasizing these things like critical thinking very early on and they're gonna start to learn how to do it that basically it's this again this whole bad idea is watering down things that we're treating critical thinking like a party trick that can be learned if you just start practicing it early on so education no longer really it doesn't yield as much critical thinking And so that's precisely why it has to talk about it a lot, right? That the talk of critical thinking essentially masks the failure of not producing a lot of critical thinking, right? That the marketing campaign for education's critical thinking success is just that. It's a marketing campaign and it has to market itself as doing it because it doesn't actually do it. Like it doesn't speak for itself, In the same way that, think about like creativity, right? And I've, I've, I, this is an earlier episode, but if you don't know what people have created before in the past, you don't know how to create anything original. This is T.S. Eliot. You have to know something about the landscape of what's been created. I mean, otherwise, you're, you might just incidentally uh, or accidentally. Just produce something extremely similar to something else that somebody else did, and uh, you know when someone asks you, "Oh, is this you know is this influenced by such and such?" Like, nope, never heard of them. It's just my thing. It's like okay, like it looks like exactly the same. Um, That it would just be, it it would be lacking in some way. So the sense that if you're not knowledge based. Then you can't be critical and you can't be creative. And this is exactly the opposite of what SC would want us to believe, right? that you need knowledge in order to be critical and 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 in order to be creative. That you can't like in the, again, the knowledge is the foundation, and you can't get to these latter steps, these latter stages. That they're that they're dependent again, something like scaffolding. And so if you take out, no, 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 we can put in all these extracurricular things, and we can take out all the knowledge, but we can still deliver the good things that the knowledge base ultimately leads into if we just centrally install them, right, these ends, these byproducts. And so what ends up happening is you don't have knowledge, and then you, again, education is over-promising and under-delivering. And so we don't have critical thinking. We don't have creativity. We just have this constant marketing campaign about how we're emphasizing these things in a way that they've never been emphasized before. Yeah, because they were achieved passively as the ends and the byproducts of a a solid knowledge-based foundational education. Now you've taken away the all the steps and stages towards those things, put in all this other stuff. So anyway, in the end, all it gives you is an uncritical bias towards destruction. That that is sort of what takes root, right? That there's no real need to... Destruction here is positive, the opposite of creativity, Right? And uncritical is the opposite of critical. So it's... it's. People don't learn to be critical. They don't learn to be creative. And they have an uncritical bias toward or in favor of destruction. That almost as if destruction is like an acceptable form of creation or creativity. That the, even the distinction between these things can't be made because of a lack of discernment that that is uncritical another idea that's um, that comes up in Hirsch as well as in other places but uh, I like the way that I articulated here in my notes that two lives are better than one that students already have their you know their their sort of public life in the general you know population and there's a kind of a I don't know, kind of a shared consciousness about, you know, in their in their sort of quote-unquote normal lives. But then there's this other existence that they have at school that is, you know, it's been phrased in many different ways, but it's like a, you know, a, a world apart. Um, yeah, uh, Oakshot, I think, describes it as a world apart. Neil Postman describes it as the two curriculums. and what is this second other life well first of all it can't just be at the whim of the culture itself because then it's all just the same thing that everyone only gets exposed to the same influence right that they don't have you know these influences you know in the in their life outside of school and then there's something well not something but that schooling is unique but when schools are pressured just to mimic the same priorities of the world surrounding them as the world outside them in a sense when they become let's just use the word infiltrated when schools become infiltrated by like popular ideas and you know popular prejudices about what's you know what's important and and what isn't then the experience of a young person in a culture becomes very homogenous that everything is the same. Whereas I think if you, if you put it in these terms, I think most people would much prefer that education had more of an influence on the world outside of it. right? If we think of them as, think of, just think of ed- education or as schools or universities, in terms of just, I guess I'm talking really about the spirit of education, that that is the thing that we want influencing the outside world more rather than well the outside world like you know pop culture should just take over education i don't think anyone would would really be in favor of that or think it's a good idea right but if we had you know a really thriving educational system that was you know impacting or influencing the the popular culture much more that we want pop culture to become more educated we don't want education to become more You know, pop culture-ified or pop culture-y. It's not what we want, but it's the way that things are going, right? That's why these things need to be identified and uh, articulated. We can't underestimate or fail to appreciate this Again, this special world, this second life. Again, two lives are better than one. Of relating to someone who knows more than you do on a topic with the benefit of their expertise. Now, some kids probably do get that outside of school. But many, I think, don't. And not in the same way. And not with the same concentration. I mean, of course, your parents are teaching you things all the time, but um, it's, uh, I think it has to be said that there's just, it's very different. I mean, it's, we often use the word formal with education, where right? I think that the things your parents teach you this is more of an, an informal education. And, as, I mean, all teaching requires teaching, you know, by example. But again, this formal education with this person that is not your parent. Again, this is a child's you know, your introduction to public life that like that you have a you have a job to do. Okay. Well I think let me see where I'm at in terms of time. I think that I will stop here. I've, uh, and then I'll probably go into, I'll go into Oakshot next time as, uh, as the plan, for this, season. T H E M, um, Michael Oakshot being the fourth in the acronym there, using M, the first letter of his name. Okay. Well, uh, I realized that, I think I did a lot of editorializing and not a huge focus on Hirsch. But I think, nevertheless, that the that these you know really important ideas from Hirsch came through, and again I spent probably uh, probably more time than I than I might have, um, just kind of reintroducing what I'm trying to you know the kind of spirit of the project of TVSC and uh, some of this establishing why a critique of SC is um, is is perhaps well founded. So we'll wrap up with Oakshot, and again, it'll be uh, probably a a similar kind of flavor, Um, fairly, uh, you know, sparse quoting and a lot of editorializing, and then we'll sort of move into the next phase, um, picking up from these thinkers. Okay, well, thank you very much, and be well.